0: I invite you to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke. I'm not going to preach on what's in the passage. I turned that in a few weeks ago, and uh, I forgot some things when I turned that in. So we're looking at Luke chapter 18. It's page 877 in these Bibles in the pews. Luke 18. And as you're turning there, I would like to remind you that next Sunday, after each of the services, we will have a congregational meeting for the purpose of electing officers next Sunday after the worship services Luke chapter 18 verses 9 and following we have uh, I'm going to read for you a parable that's what's in this passage but when we come to the parables the stories that Jesus gave that had a meaning behind them um, very rarely does it tell us at the very beginning what the purpose of the parable is this is an exception Sometimes we do not have an explanation. Other times we have Jesus explaining the parables that he told to the disciples after he told them. But here we are told from the very beginning the purpose of this parable. I'll begin reading in verse 9. Now here's the purpose. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Okay, that's... So we know it's about self-righteousness. It's about an arrogant attitude toward other people. And it says that he told this to them, not about them. And here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. will be exalted. So ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, you tell us that we do not live by bread alone, physical bread, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So nourish us now, we ask, from your spiritual bread. In Jesus' name, amen. Is change possible? change in your life, change in other lives. People today truly are doubtful that anyone can really change. And so we tend to think people are predetermined from birth to be of a certain character. Mark Dever, pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, observed in one of his books that I read, he said, Today many think the way of wisdom is to learn just to accept who you are. Adjust to it. Adapt to it, don't fight it, and certainly not try to change it. The die is cast, your personality is assigned, the leopard does not change his spots. So we shrug our shoulders and say, "That's the way it is. We're told maturity comes from facing the truth about yourself and then resigning yourself to it," end of quote. So any suggestion that you can change is met with suspicion. And then any suggestion that you should change is regarded as manipulation. So, whether it's questioning your vocation, or your religious beliefs, or your sexual desires, or your personal ethics, we are told, and many of us believe, you are who you are, and therefore you should be proud of it. That's just who you are. But despite all of this assumption, and suspicion about the possibility of change, ironically, don't most of us still have a deep longing for change? There's a restlessness and there's a dissatisfaction with ourselves. We are not content. We look in the mirror and say, I wish I could do something differently. I wish I was different. I wish I was not this way. And so in an attempt to change, we rearrange the externals. We move to a new house. We rearrange the furniture. We change apartments. We lose some weight. Or we change our style and buy a new wardrobe. And if things get really worse, we change the city we're living in. Or we change our vocation. Or we change our spouse. And yet, even amidst all the options and choices that are available to us, we still find ourselves trapped and hopeless saying, change, I can't change myself. So is it possible? Is change possible? What does the Bible say about deep, real, genuine, personal change? It says a lot, and it calls it conversion Two men go up to the temple to pray. I'm assuming you know this parable. It's brief. It's to the point. You know about Pharisees and tax collectors. Just a couple of weeks ago when Justin Lesline preached, there was a tax collector, and we heard about them. But it's important to see the contrast between these two. But especially that he said this in verse 9, as I mentioned, to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they viewed others with contempt. So here's the Pharisee. We've been conditioned to see the Pharisees as the guys all standing with their black hats twirling their mustaches. That is not how they were viewed at the time this occurred. In the eyes of the people of that day, they were the good, decent people. They were the religious and moral successes of the day. They were highly regarded among the groups of Judaism, and to begin with, there were never very many of them at most. There were only about 3,000 at any one time, so it was a rather select group. They were not a political group, Per se, but they had great political power since they were so respected. They, a religious body who had a chief concern, their chief concern was to observe outwardly the most minute details of the law to make sure that their behavior aligned with what they saw that the law from the Old Testament taught. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. The Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, had been a Pharisee. So this man, this, neither, we're not given either names, this Pharisee stands in the temple and he prays and thanks God that I'm not like other men, extortioners, evildoers, adulterers, I tithe, I fast, and so forth. And he probably was truthful in his prayer. There's no reason, Jesus Jesus doesn't give us any reason in this parable to think that he's lying. He probably did fast twice a week, and that was more than the Old Testament required. The Old Testament, for God's people, had a day of fasting, which was the day of atonement. But this man, rather than fasting once a year, was fasting twice a week. To devote himself, we assume, to prayer. He says he tied. So he gave at least a tenth, perhaps a good bit more, to the work of the Lord. He was willing to lower his standard of living for his religious devotion. So there's no reason to doubt whether he was deeply devoted to his religion. He's even respected by the tax collector who comes in. Now the tax collector, I believe it was Justin preaching a couple of weeks ago that that mentioned, you know, how Rome sold the right to tax an area to the highest bidder. So to use our terminology, the government would sell, okay, we want from 1st Street down to 3rd Street and from Mulberry over two blocks, and within that area, we will sell the right to tax to the highest bidder. And so one says, well, I can bring you $20,000 in taxes over the next year. another said, I can bring 40, 50, sold 50. Now, here was the thing. Rome just wanted what they had agreed upon, the 50,000. Anything you could get above and beyond that was yours to keep. So extortion was built into the system. That's why they were so hated. They, were, they could take as much as they wanted, though they only paid a certain amount to Rome. And it's been that way the entire history of the world we don 't see it as much in our culture, but if you travel years ago when this church sent me to Eastern Europe with four other pastors in the in our denomination, we were gone for two weeks and we went and visited with missionaries and saw mission works in Romania and Hungary and the Ukraine and Poland and We had been there in Poland and we were going to Romania We flew to into Hungary, and we were picked up by these two drivers that had come from Romania, and we were going over the border about midnight, headed to an orphanage slash church where we would be for the next several days. So it's about midnight on a Friday night. We are driving on a country road that was as black as tar. There was no moon that I remember. There was no, certainly no street lights or even reflectors on the road. I guess it was only familiarity that allowed our Romanian drivers to know where we were going. But far in the distance, we could see the bright lights of the the border crossing into Romania. But about a mile or two from there, where it was still dark, we came around a corner, a curve, real quick, and there were these Hungarian policemen. And they were out of their cars, and they were pretty much... Uh, three sheets to the wind they'd been they were drinking they had their their bottles in their hands and they motioned our they motioned one car to go ahead but to stop about 100 yards out and then they got our driver and they asked him to get out of the car and he explained to us later they had their flashlights and we saw them looking at the tires and they said because the tires did not match there was a 75 dollar fine so the driver argued with him, got back in the car, waited a while. Then he got out and handed them the seventy-five dollars, and we were on our way. I mean, that's that's the world, folks. And so they were just extorting that money out, and we went went on, and then came to the Romanian border, and that was a little intimidating when a seventeen-year-old, looked like seventeen-year-old, with an AK-47 and a full in full camo came to our window and said, "Let's see your papers." Uh, before we could go in. But, so they were hated. He was hated. And he was a traitor all day long. He was despised by his own people. Okay, now, the, what's the comparison of the two? In those mm. days, if if both of them were running for office, you would have been glad to have, to have worked for the Pharisee. You would not have wanted the tax collector elected. If If one of them was dating your sister... You would be glad to have the Pharisee for a brother-in-law. You would not have wanted the tax collector as a brother-in-law. Okay, I won't belabor that anymore. You get the picture in Jesus' day. But here's the deal. He is taking the accepted notions of the day and he's turning them upside down. And he does the same for us today. Whom you respect and look up to, how you think is the way of righteousness, he's going to flip it completely upside down. And we see this in the prayers of these two men. The Pharisee, we read his prayer in verse 11. I won't read it all again, but where he said, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I don't do these certain things. I don't especially thank you I'm not like him. The tax collector. And what bothers us about this guy is he is conceited. He's arrogant. And most of us don't like arrogance, and we don't like conceit, and we'd like our heroes to be modest. This guy has no humility. He's looking at his own deeds, thinking that they give him the right to stand before God, and he's confident in that right standing, and it's all based on his performance, and he is gloating in his self-righteousness, and we don't like it. We want our heroes to be modest. Let others praise them. If somebody's done something noteworthy, we want to know about it, but we want someone else to tell them. If you're a student, and you get an exam back, and you made a C, and the person sitting next to you made an A, and looks over and says, well, how did you do? Well, I made a C. And how'd you do? I made an A. And you want them to say, you know, I just happened to study the right thing. Or you're really smart, and you just... I know you probably focused on chapters 3 and 4, and the test came from chapter 2. We don't want them looking over saying, how do you ever get in this school anyway? I mean, do you know how to read? If I'm invited by someone who plays tennis, I don't see him like Chuck Duggan and. And we go play tennis, and he wins 6-0, 6-0. And afterwards, I, I want to walk up to the net and him say, you know, Chip, I can tell that you used to have some skill. You just haven't been practicing enough. Uh, you know, what in your day? The ball was kind of coming my way. Or That's what I want to hear. I don't want to hear him coming to the net saying, Miller, I don't know what you were playing today, but it wasn't tennis. And do me a favor. Never ask me to come out here and waste my time with you again. We don't like conceit. We want our heroes to be modest, and this man is arrogant, and he's conceited, and we see it. And what makes it even worse? He's standing in the temple. He's in the presence of God when he's saying these things. And so he's filled with pride. One of the symptoms of self-righteousness, and I think we've all got it, is it's a critical spirit. Because self-righteousness feeds itself by comparing itself favorably with others. We look at others' vices and we think of our virtues. We look at others' weaknesses and think of our strengths. As Haddon Robinson put it, we have a way of cutting other people off at the knees and putting ourselves up on stilts. In comparison, we seem tall. He's not only arrogant, he is an example, this Pharisee is, of grace gone sour. What I mean, and what a great visual aid. All right, here's this little girl, Charlotte, Lottie, and these kids. And like other children, or those of you that have been brought up in the church, you hear God's word. You're exposed to the Bible. You're exposed to the teachings of the faith. You're exposed to other people who are seeking to follow Christ. Amazing heritage to be exposed to that. I had it myself. I didn't like it. I didn't want to be dragged off to church by my mother. I wanted to be with my friends who were the the family down the street that was on the Coosa River water skiing every Sunday morning. I wanted to do that. And yet, years later, I think of the things I learned and the things I was exposed to and how God used that in my life, even though I was going kicking and screaming, so to say. This Pharisee had had that. He had been exposed to the Scriptures. He knew how to read. He had the, the, the accompaniment of the other Pharisees. He had been richly blessed by God, and yet its grace gone sour. Rather than giving him humility, it just made him proud and arrogant. At the same time, the tax collector, even though he's in the temple, he can't even look up. He can't look up. So the other one is confident in himself, the other has no confidence. Why is self-righteousness so often invisible? Why do we have a hard time seeing it even in ourselves? In Tom Havistall's book, Extreme Righteousness, I wrote down these four things that he goes into great detail. One, we're blinded by society. In other words, we compare favorably to our peers. So society society blinds us to our own self-righteousness we're blinded by our own morality we come up with some kind of legal code that we can keep we define acceptance by God based on one particular ethic that happens to come easy for us but for me we're blinded by religion I'm Presbyterian child of a Presbyterian and my granddaddy was a pastor or all this and And uh, yeah, we go to church so often and give money and so forth, but the heart is not transformed. So that can blind us, just being religious. But last of all, and I think the one probably in our circles that's most dangerous, is blinded by knowledge. We become confused thinking that biblical knowledge is the same as application. And one of the dangers of having skill with the Bible And, of course, we should all be meditating on God's Word day and night. I hope you know me well enough. I don't need to qualify this. But one of the dangers of knowing the Bible and having a working knowledge is thinking because we know it, therefore we know God. And if a Pharisee was in our midst right now, he'd put all those of us that have been to seminary and have spent more time studying, he'd put all of us to shame with the knowledge uh, especially the Old Testament. So I think knowledge, the Apostle Paul was na- not anti-intellectual at all. And yet it was, it was Paul who wrote, knowledge makes arrogant. So the more we learn can either be a help to us or can be a liability. If we think, well, I must know God. He must be pleased with me. Look how much I know about the Bible. Look how much I know about theology and doctrine. Should we know the Bible and theology and doctrine? Of course, but we don't rely upon it. But now the focus shifts to the other man. In the last few moments I have. Oh, by the way, this is a Thanksgiving sermon, but the only the last sentence of the sermon relates to Thanksgiving. Okay, we will speak directly to Thanksgiving. All of it relates to it, whether you believe me. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. All right, here's the tax collector's prayer. He stood far off, and he's beating his breast. He would not even look up into heaven. Now, this is important because the typical posture for prayer in the Old Testament was this. That's what what you see over and over. Lifted hands, standing face to heaven. He won't even do that. And all he says is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's no litany of his accomplishments. There's no comparison with anyone else. He recognized he was a sinner. He had been convicted of his sin, and he had come to the one place to find the solution, to find forgiveness. And we may think, well, he should have felt guilty about his sin. After all, he was a tax collector. I mean, what kind of, how blind do you have to be? He should have seen himself as a sinner. Well, he could have stood there and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like that self-righteous Pharisee standing up there in the front. I know I've sinned, at least I'm willing to admit it. <laughs> it's sitting in my notes, but did you read the story in Texas where two men robbed a bank? True story. And when they were brought before the judge, they their defense was we didn't wear masks. <laughs> at least we were honest about who we were as we robbed the bank. So when God's Spirit begins powerfully to call us to turn from our sins, there's conviction. There's always conviction. Now, we may not show it with weeping and tears like some, but we are pierced in our hearts, and we know I'm in the presence of a holy God, and I, like, I'm Isaiah, like Isaiah, am not holy. So the Holy Spirit comes to convict. We see the seriousness of our sin. So back to the question, is change possible? And the world says you are the way you are, so just be mature about it, come to realize it and accept it. And any idea of deep change is only deception. And yet the Bible says that the word we need is repent. And the word repent in the Old Testament and the New Testament means to turn, which means a change. Our past sins need to be forgiven. Our present sins need to present lives need to be reoriented, and our future destiny will be changed from hell to heaven. Two results. Jesus tells us that man went home justified. One of the benefits of living in God's presence is this. I'm going to repeat it several times. When you really see God, you see yourself. And when you see yourself, you see your sin. And when you see your sin, you cry out for God's mercy, and he gives it. Here are some examples. Job. Job. Job in the Old Testament is described by the writer as the most righteous man of his day. You know how he suffered. He had these friends that came to talk to him, and they said, you can only be suffering like this because you've sinned greatly. And Job denied it. And Job was right. He refused to accept their thesis that suffering only comes from sin. But at the end of the book, he does sin. In his vindicating himself, he's over the top and he sins not before his friends come, but but after they come. But at the end of the book, he sees a vision of God. God speaks, and Job repents in sackcloth and ashes. What happened? Seeing God, he saw himself, and when he saw himself, he saw his sin, and when he saw his sin, he cried out for mercy and grace, and God gave it. Isaiah. Isaiah was the exceptional, one of the exceptional young men of his day. But there comes an hour of personal crisis and national crisis, and he has a vision of God. And in that vision, he says, as a result of that vision, Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. To put it in our vernacular, I am toast. I am a sinner in the sight and in the presence of a holy God. What happened? Isaiah saw himself, and when he saw God, and when he saw God, he saw himself, and when he saw himself, he saw his sin, and when he saw his sin, he cried out to God for grace and mercy, and God gave it. If you live in the presence of God and live in the light of his holiness, you will see your sin, and when you see your sin, you see your need for forgiveness, and you cry out to God for grace to cleanse you. This is not popular today. Guilt is not popular. In fact, if you tell someone, "I just really feel bad about," it. I think I need to change this. They'll say, "You know, you need to see a counselor. Something's wrong with you. You need to get over this," like that. But God's grace cannot be found without humility. It's essential to receiving mercy. So this is the point of the parable. Do you want to be free from guilt? Well, first, confess your sin to God with remorse and repentance and then accept his forgiveness and grace, the gift to you. I, uh, I like to listen to certain types of books. I mean, they're books that you study and they're books that I listen to. So in the past several months, i it helps me just to constantly be learning and hearing stuff. I find that very replenishing. So as I'm driving, as I'm exercising and so forth, I like to listen. So over the past few months, I've listened to uh, John Krakauer's books about uh, Pat Tillman, you know, the NFL player who died in Afghanistan. I listened to Missoula about uh, rape on college campuses and the criminal justice system. I've listened to, then I thought I'd go back and listen to books that I don't remember reading in high school. I did learn to read, but being from Alabama, I'm, I listened to To Kill a Mockingbird for the very first time. I'm embarrassed to tell you that. But Sissy Spacek was the narrator. That made it good. I listened to Huckleberry Finn and uh, oh, the guy in Lord of the Rings, uh, Elijah Wood. He was, uh, he was the... It's, it's embarrassing when you're exercising, and I've got headphones on. I start laughing out loud, and nobody knows when I'm laughing out listening to Huckleberry Finn. But two weeks ago... I listened to a book that I was not expecting to have such a profound impact on me and that is a book by Jackie Hill Perry entitled and I want you to remember this because I really want you to read it if you haven't read it already or listen to it Gay Girl, Good God Jackie Hill Perry grew up in the hood St. Louis um, African-American horrendous background Uh, far back as she remembers, was a lesbian, and lived that lifestyle, high school, out of high school, working, and was radically converted about 11 years ago. And she narrates the book. It's worth listening to it rather than reading it because to hear her voice. And now she uh, is probably one of, that book is the most The clearest, astute thing I've ever heard on the explanation of the gospel going back to the Garden of Eden and an explanation of repentance is profound, the insight God has given her after a relatively short time of being a Christian. But anyway, some people told me after the first service that they follow her on Twitter. I followed her for about a year, but that's the first time I've, I've listened to her. And I was mesmerized. It was encouraging. It was fascinating. It was humorous. It was uh, filled with truth. It was enlightening. And I want to read you one paragraph, okay, about repentance. Because typically, especially in the church, we pick one area and think if you just repent of that one area, that's all you need to do. And what we're really doing is being legalistic, and we're doing exactly what the Pharisees said. So she tells about, she's a poet. She's not really a teacher as much as a poet. And she said, I realized this one day, talking about the comprehensiveness of repentance, while interacting with a young lady who was offended by my testimony of overcoming homosexuality. After a few personal attacks and curse words, I asked her this question. Let's just say homosexuality wasn't even an issue with you. Would God still be pleased with your life as a whole? To which she responded, mildly mildly caught off guard by the angle of my question. Here's the quote: Would God still be pleased with you if homosexuality was not an issue? And the woman said, no. No, he wouldn't. Jackie Hill says, I asked her that question specifically because I needed her to see that God had more than her sexual actions in mind when he commanded her and us to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we are as complex as he's made us to be, then surely we are much more sinful than we can imagine. And for that reason, when God comes to restore, he must do it entirely. So we repent of everything because he loves us in everything. End of quote. When that happens, you are justified. You are made right with God. You have a righteousness not of your own, but bought by someone else. R.C. Sproul wrote, Let us abandon the hope of gaining access to God on the basis of our own righteousness. And let us cling instead to the righteousness of Christ. When we come into the presence of God, let us come not with an attitude of self-justification, but with an attitude of dependence upon his mercy. Last sentence. And for this, we should be thankful. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you. We truly do thank you that you don't accept us based on our actions, but on the actions of Christ. May our trust be in him and him only, reveal the deposits of self-righteousness that even remain in us after conversion, that show up when we can't, quote, forgive ourselves or when we don't think you've forgiven us when you say that you have. And we cling to those things as though they are our hope, We pray for humility. Enable us, Father, to see you and as as a result of that to see ourselves and to see our sin and to cry out for mercy, which you pour out richly. In Jesus' name, amen.